Hello and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, poet and playwright, Mark Anthony Rossi. In this, our third year, we continue to explore the meaning of being an artist in an ever-changing digital world. Now, without further ado, here is your host. Hi folks and welcome back to Strength to Be Human. I'm your host, Mark Anthony Rossi, poet and playwright. And this is episode 186, The Promise and Price of Solitude in Writing. I know it's a bit of a long title. So we're going to go over some various, um, I guess you can say, forms of, of solitude and how it could be helpful. I want to talk about a, a few different ones. Sometimes they're not necessarily in writing this solitude, but... It allows to have some contrast so you can see really where we're going with this, okay? Now, I want to read you a basic definition about uh, solitude because many people have a lot of misconceptions about it. In fact, um, most of the times it's kind of negative. So let's let's go with the negative and the positive and we'll get a full uh, balance of, of, of what it is, okay? Especially how it relates to uh, creativity. So here's a basic definition. It helps, and then we'll, we'll kind of expand from there. Loneliness is a negative state marked by a sense of isolation. Solitude is a state of being alone without being lonely. It is a positive and constructive state of engagement with oneself. Solitude is desirable, a state of being alone where you provide yourself wonderful and sufficient company. I know it sounds a little a little kooky when you when you hear it sound like that, but that that really what it is, um, and it could be anything. And we're going to go over various forms, but it could be anything as basic as me today uh, finding the time to actually uh, get some solitude so I can record a show about solitude. <laughs> as funny as that sounds, but everybody went over to do all their soccer chores and everything else, and I've done enough this week, so. I need a break. So this is a perfect time to do this. I think I was joking with a writer the other day. I need some solitude to do my show on solitude. And that's the truth. So yeah, it could be literally um, the time you set aside in your schedule of a day in order to be able to write or, or form notes or edit or, or something, you know, something creative. Or it can go down to, you know, just taking yourself away from people because, uh, you know, you need a, a psychological breath of air. Sometimes that's how people recharge their batteries and you know, etc. Okay. Now, oftentimes, I think throughout the years, definitely throughout the centuries, solitude review was viewed as an antisocial act, almost like a prelude to suicide, or needlessly enforced hermitism. That's you know when you're becoming a hermit to drive away temptation. Now, there's been some extremist examples of this. I'm told that there could be up to a million in Japan who uh, engage in an extreme solitude, it's called hikomori, where they just simply never leave their apartment for like years at a time. Now, I don't know if they're hoarders, I don't know if the place is hygienic or not, I don't know if they ever take a shower, I don't know. All I know is it's uh, an extreme force, forced uh, isolation, and this isn't positive, okay? It's definitely uh, something negative. In fact, it might even... 
uh, cause various depressive uh, or uh, psychologically abnormal states from doing this. But nevertheless, there's a sizable amount of people that are doing this in Japan. I don't know why. It's not culturally norm, but hey, nevertheless. Now, ironically, Japan has had a tradition of the positive form. A lot of people don't realize this, but when you were training to be a samurai, I mean, you had to do everything from learning how to to uh, to use a sword. You know, remember, they practice with the wooden sword so that you don't accidentally kill each other. Uh, but then you also had to learn how to do some some painting. You had a new calligraphy where you 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 drew various uh, uh, words and symbols, and and then of course you you had to actually practice your haiku. And a lot of times, uh, works like that had to be doing solitude in, in you know in a bit of a garden someplace. So uh, amazingly enough, the the samurai when he was out there guarding villages and, and doing his. Uh, you know, his physical soldier-like work was also somebody that had a, a real, um, a real douse of spirituality, a, a real douse of, of creativity. Just a, a cultured individual wasn't just some Hulk with a sword killing people, you know, or bad people, you know, trying to take the village over or something. So it's a, that was in a creative uh, a, a way to really mend all these different disciplines. I always found that fascinating because if you think about it on paper or you just think about it, you know, for a, just a, a glancing second, you see some dude with a sword, you're not thinking this guy knows anything about religion, anything about poetry, anything about writing, anything about art, anything about solitude or contemplation, anything about, you know, Zen states of meditation and etc. But nevertheless, they were like trained in all of that. So I, I definitely uh, not only find that uh, fascinating, but in many ways... It really shows how important they felt that the, uh, I guess the, not the balance, but the, I guess the the global picture of being a, a samurai needed to fill in all these various blanks that they felt were necessary to make you whole, you know, as a samurai, that you knew something about uh, religion and, and people and art and, you know, all of that. So it really, it really made a... a a complete picture for for the for the samurai, and they're one of the few cultures that really, they really did that. All right, now let's go here. We got a number of philosophers, of course. Uh, number it doesn't seem to be that unusual for philosophers who have a, uh, an idea about solitude or even practice it, but there's been a number of writers that that have done the same. Okay, and if you think about it, in many instances. Uh, your, your painter, whether it's Van Gogh or anyone else, uh, I mean, literally the act of painting, you know, uh, a, a landscape, a portrait, or abstract, or whatever, is an act of solitude, because it's not like you're doing it really, you know, in the presence of people. You're not. You're finding the time to go do this, and no one's bothering you in your studio, unless you're painting somebody like a Mona Lisa or a nude or something like that. You're, you're pretty much alone. But of course, writers, uh, this is uh, becoming an important part of, of the writing craft to have an understanding of, of solitude and what it means to you as an artist. Let me read off some of the uh, the various people that have done uh, this and made it a part of a philosophical practice. Okay? Alright, here we go. Augustine, you know, the both the saint and the philosopher and the theologian. Uh, Patriarch. Um, Martine. Uh, Gibbon, uh, Rousseau, uh, Darrow, Thomas Merton, and Paul Auster. Here's a, a real good example of 
writers and, and artists and, and thinkers that, that really use that. Okay? Now, it says here, um, which I thought was very fascinating, the process of even writing an autobiography is conceived is conceived as a form of solitude. Uh, you think that's a little redundant because if you're going to write your autobiography, you're going into a place where there's no money around. You're already committing to your act of solitude. So I don't know how the genre of autobiography is any more solitude than, um, <laughs> you know, writing a poem or an essay or anything like that. But I guess that is uh, interesting how they put that. Maybe just because you have to have the deeper form of solitude because you also internally accessing things more but i don't know you think the creativity of writing a poem or anything else is also you know an act of internal um extraction and process but this is how they put that i don't we'll take a little exception to that and think it's a little overdone on that but hey all right but i like this phrase because it makes a lot of sense as to what we're talking about solitude helps authors reorient their lives according to their moral ideals and spiritual aspirations so yes definitely uh, true now there are various forms of solitudes what we're going to talk about okay i'll give you a general prescription of those and then we'll talk about three of them that we really want to try to concentrate on the show about to how to kind of help you give you some you know i guess you could say a, a greater a psychological landscape of what we're talking about and, and it kind of gives you a real good view overall of, of some of the some of the main ones that you, you're going to encounter in your life or you're going to know other people to do or what's been done in general for, for people over the centuries okay all right so the act of solitude depending on why you're doing it can be very different in terms of uh, not only his intentions but also even its results all right so it's different for a teacher who needs to get some brief solitude from the stress of teaching Sort of like a, like a mini sabbatical, okay? Versus a, a, a prisoner who's been forced into solitary confinement for weeks or months, okay? Just like it's different for the author, the composer, to go to a room to intensely focus on their creative work, all right? That's completely different than the solitude that's necessary for a bird watcher who's alone in the woods checking out the, uh, the birds. You have to think that that kind of solitude... Is, is more practical because you, you can't have a crowd of people with you when you're trying to observe a bird. I don't know. I don't understand this bird watching. It seems to be a, a real a real pastime for a lot of people who take it really seriously. And I, I, I'm, always, I'm always fascinated by uh, how people are more devoted to that. I mean, I like watching birds. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I have a, a bird feeder out in the yard where I have the, the cardinals that come by and the, and the blue jays. We have some really pretty birds over here, and I like checking that out. But I can't really conceive it as a plan of I'm going to these woods. I'm going to try to get to spot this bird. I got this particular clothing on and got these binoculars and blah, blah, blah. I, I'm not making light of it. God knows I'm not trying to make fun of it. I just couldn't get into that far of doing it. Okay. I mean, it'll be casual here and, and I appreciate it. I can see some of the... Um, uh, I guess you could say the, the, the gift that you get from, from checking out the birds. So they're so pretty and, and you just see how they act. And yeah, I, as I've gotten older, I, I can appreciate that more, you know, versus I'm, I'm a city guy. So I'm telling you, other than pigeons and, and, a, and a, an occasional, you know, robin or crow, that's about all you ever see in the city anyway. You don't get to see really pretty birds. They tend to be uh, just the average bird. Have you ever seen a pigeon in the city? Trust me, you can see 10,000 and they all look the same. 
<laughs> just like a crow too. It looks like a just a, an uglier version of a raven. Always black, always uh, stringing with its legs and, and claws, and always trying to get a piece of food and run away. And according to the Indians, that's the American Indians. If you see one that's supposed to portend that death is around the corner or something, maybe necessarily for you, but somebody in your life. But I couldn't seem to go that far. But I think you can tell from the teacher to the prisoner to the artist to the bird watcher. Those are all forms of solitude. I know it sounds weird when you add the prisoner and all this because in many ways the prisoner is being forced into the solitude where all the other three uh, persons and situations is voluntarily. But it's still a solitude when someone puts you in a, in a, in a locked room with a little bit of light for 23 hours a day. I think you get an hour to walk the court or something. And then you go back in there again. And all you're doing is eating and pooping. And possibly reading a book in the same room. So that, that can't be exciting. I understand it has a lot of psychological duress for it all times. That's the reason why they do it. For a form of punishment. But I'm told that there are some people uh, as prisoners. That uh, while this is done a number of times. Uh, have figured out how to adapt to it. And, and create themselves a... Uh, some mental strength in it so maybe it, it loses its uh, punitive uh, effect over time all right now you have some folks here that they have uh, created a deep solitude okay but solitude like anything else and you know you learn it from the of course the prisoner being put into solitary confinement but like anything else too much of it is not a good thing okay it's okay to have three or four Oreo cookies, but when you have 29 of them, well, you're not feeling so hot, you know? It's like uh, you're drinking a gallon of chocolate milk in the, in the sitting, you know? What's going to come out the other end? It's going to look a lot like that, So and, and quick too, so that's not fun. So you don't want to overdo anything, okay? And the reason why is because of this. The nature of the human being to live alone all the time is not conducive to our human condition unto uh, who we are as creatures okay we're meant to socialize and have a balance between how we circulate and how we circulate in and circulate out so we're meant to have portions of socialization and portions of solitude now on a very i guess you could say passive sense just coming home especially if the home is empty you know, after a long day of work, especially if it's a bad day, is, is a sort of a, a basic passive form of solitude. You know, sometimes uh, the home uh, becomes a real gift for us or even a real blessing for us, not because it has all the cool pictures of the people we remember in our lives and who we love or because it has nice furniture or because the dog can't wait to see us or because the cat can't wait to ignore us again or something like that. Sometimes it's because it is our, our special place of, of solitude. And, of course, if you have a family, it's not so easy to get. That's why you, you find parents can be a little little wacky at times. Or why they need to go out on a date night. Or where they need sometimes just to go out for alone. I know uh, my own wife, uh, she likes to go on a cruise with her mother. And that's there for a form of solitude. To get away from everybody for a week. You know, kind of hard with the COVID thing. So, they had to, like, skip it this year, unfortunately. But I'm sure next year they'll be able to get back to it and... and that's really a, a good part of their own solitude and therapy. So, yeah, you can't have too much of any good thing because then it becomes a bad thing. Okay? All right. So we're going to go over to the three types of solitude. Now, 
keep this in mind. You could go to Google and on the internet and all kinds of places and find stuff about solitude. You could find like 20 different versions of it. I mean, people have sub breakdowns of different subgroups of it. I'm not going that far because I don't think it's necessary for the show. All right. So there's three that I find that are the most curious and, and the most practiced. And therefore, I think they're the most interesting to talk about in the show. So I'm picking these three. All right. It's not to say there's not more. I'm just not interested in all the other ones. All right. That's, that's the only way to put it. All right. So the, uh, the first one here is. It's more of a, a mystical or, or religious uh, type of solitude. You could call it like the spiritual quest. It, it was really more common centuries ago for two reasons. Uh, sometimes for the religious reason of being in, in a monastery or a convent where it was necessary from that isolation from others because that's how you're um, learning and reinforcing your religious beliefs and, and practices. And, and sometimes in, in some of those places, uh, you, you, you had the, the monk scribes, and, and their whole job throughout the whole day was to, to reproduce a, a, a book on a parchment and that's what they were doing and they would they, you know they were practice professionals and you know and the calligraphy and all that was necessary to do that because remember they had to manufacture a copy of a book on, on a scroll because this is before the printing press so that in itself of course was an important uh, a form of of solitude and and I'm told also that they uh, they they still built it into their religious life so they would have the you know their breaks to you know, go have a cup of tea. They have their breaks for their for their for their dinner and breakfast and lunch, and of course they have a prayer breaks, even a service break. But nevertheless, that was the course of the day was was to do that. Now, Thomas Merton he wrote a book called Notes for for the Philosophy of Solitude in 1960, and it pretty much gave you some of the rules and ideals of what he did. Um, he had a long life of writing, and then he wound up becoming uh, somebody that just committed themselves to solitude, and that's how he spent the rest of his his life, contemplating ideas, not doing as much writing. I, he he, I, I guess between the lines, it seems to me that he was trying to to say in, in his in his book about this practice in life, and and maybe even you know per se that um, in many ways uh, the the amount of writing he did wasn't really allowing him to express himself to live more out there and to learn more things maybe about himself or maybe just about the world or possibly about spiritual life so when he committed himself to solitude it was almost like you know he got to live another life or maybe even he got to live the life that he wanted to before and now he gets a chance to do that but that's pretty much what he did and this sort of uh, solitude while not as I guess you could say common today. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's still convents and there's still, uh, you know, um, monasteries out there. But, you know, they're doing many different things these days. You, you got people that have TVs and radios in there and the Internet. You know, I know they got some monks that have recording studios where they can actually record religious things or even do some music and, and, and you know, sell it out there so they can sort of raise funds for the for the monastery. Um, a lot of them are doing different uh, uh, spiritual things that, that require a combination of technology or even like the great outdoors. So they're, um, the modern version of this, it's still out there in terms of the solitude, but it's not the same anymore because you're, you're not 
just isolated from people, but you're also uh, less isolated. You still consider it solitude because it's you and a computer or you and a recording device or maybe you in the wilderness. But it's not like it was, uh, you know, in the centuries ago. I, I don't know if they modernized it or they simply just made it uh, something that was um, like the next level, the next stage or the next evolution of, of solitude on the religious front. And, and I guess it makes sense that it moves on to something different. I mean, it, it would I guess it would make no, no sense just to do the same thing. You know, you did before. I mean, because some things uh, of the monastery life it can't be done anymore. People don't copy books on uh, scrolls anymore. You know, using calligraphy. I mean, everything is is simply uh, sent to the printer, and that's done that way. Or if somebody wanted a copy of something quickly, they can just do it on a Xerox machine, which is probably in the office of the monastery. You know, in the administrative office. So it's definitely not the same. So I guess it needed to move a little bit in, in a different direction. So I'm not really too surprised. But that's really one of them. And one of the more, I could say, written and, and talked about ones. It's also the one, and ironically, that people always had the negative connotations to. That if you, you know, if you were isolating yourself in this fashion, regardless if it had a religious reason or not, that, you know, maybe you were psychologically unbalanced. So maybe you were doing some weird secret, secret stuff behind the scenes or, you know, maybe you're plotting against a government or something like that, you know. It wasn't unusual back in those days for them to, to raid uh, these places to make sure that uh, weapons would be stored there or secret information would be stored there or spies wasn't living there or there was no plans to plot against the government. You know, so as you can imagine, a place like that uh, to an unstable mind, it, it could be a paranoid nightmare. All right, the next one I have here is the the creative form of solitude. It's what I call the artistic quest. Okay, now we have a number of writers uh, back in the, in the in the Roman days that they this became a real part of their philosophy. Now they didn't do that like a monastery or, or a convent, so they wasn't constantly gone, but they were gone enough of the of of the year, the calendar year, where they they devoted a certain amount of times, months or whatever, to this because they felt it was important to their, to their uh, I guess you could say their inner psychological life, and of course uh, possibly to their for their creative well being. All right, so we got authors like Horace, the poet, Seneca, the philosopher and senator, uh, Pliny the Younger, another writer. Okay, now. This is really good right here. This is an excerpt from a poem by Horace, and, and it illustrates perfectly um, the real the real excitement of people who got into this whole idea of, of solitude. It was almost like they were excited to do so. Almost like, I can't wait to stop doing this job. I can't wait to talk to these boring people in the Senate and go off the, to my, my, my cottage in the countryside and just hang out and drink wine and contemplate stuff and write. I mean, really. So here we go. O rural home, when shall I behold you? When shall I be able, now with books of the ancients, now with sleep and idle hours, to quaff sweet forgetfulness of life's cares? It really is uh, just elegant and perfect. Although I, I, I think it's funny that you're talking about books of the ancients. Jesus, you guys are the ancients right now to us. What the hell is more ancient than that? But you got me. But that's what they were doing. And you could just make it really clear over there. Because oftentimes, you know, these are people that have, um, they're not all necessarily rich, but they all have enough of a upper middle class, uh, you know, lifestyle that, you know, they, they maintain a residence in the city of Rome for business reasons and they couldn't get way to the countryside so they can go out and do something creative. 
because in many ways they wasn't doing anything really creative <laughs> in Rome. It was just mostly business, the business of uh, you know of Rome and the, and the empire. So I like that. Now there was a writer in 1973. She wrote a book, uh, Mary Sarton, and she wrote a book called Journal of a Solitude, and that one really talked a lot about her own ideas of solitude and the things that she had to face and the things that she had to deal with. Um, she's probably a little bit more sensitive of a soul than, than most because she seems to be always tackling with something. Always like I, I, I what they would call the micromanaging thing. Well, imagine being micromanaging every moment of your life, and this is what she did. So I don't know if she had a form of uh, you know OCB or something on, on this kind of front, but you know, their book is full with the kind of details that some of them are not, not necessary <laughs> to us or anyone else. But they were necessary to her. And that's how she uh, engages the world and, and interpret the world, broke it down and, you know, and, and all of that. So, I mean, don't get me wrong. God bless her for doing that. But uh, I don't know anybody went that far. But that's an important book to, to check out if you'd like. Okay. Now, the, the next and the last stage on some of all of this is... It's really what I call the internal quest. It's more of the athletic wilderness one. You know, hiking, rock climbing, people are taking a walk in the park. You see this a lot. Uh, and oftentimes when you're dealing with uh, these athletes that are rock climbing and they're hiking and stuff like that, you know, hiking you can still do with somebody. It doesn't have to necessarily be an act of solitude. But rock climbing, you're not really rock climbing with somebody. I mean, because you got to concentrate every moment of the of everything on that. But I feel, in many instances, that's really a serious form of of, of solitude because I really think people do this uh, not just for the uh, for the challenge of of physically climbing the rocks, but also because I I really think it it helps them in their mental focus and I think it helps them clear their mind because I'm thinking there's nothing more clearing of your mind is you're on a, a, a rock slope over here and if you make a mistake you're going to fall to your death so you're not really thinking about Twinkies or, 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 or the girl you met last week at the museum or that deep concept that Einstein was talking about on, on YouTube All right, you're, you're thinking about the rocks and that, that definitely clears everything in your head now, uh, M Michel de Montague, he wrote an essay called Of Solitude in, in 1580. And it really, I think, in many ways talks about what we're, what we're talking about here, the eternal quest. And that could be anything as casual or as passive as I'm going to go take a walk in the park for a couple hours to clear my mind. I've had a rough day. Or I'm going to just go do a five-mile jog because I've had somebody close to me die and... This will help me in a way to sort of process it by breaking it on down and, you know, and all of that. Because, you know, running and, and breathing and just the whole act of that itself can be a, a psychological cleansing act. Which, a lot of times, that's what this is. The solitude of this form is not always necessary just about being alone and being apart from people just to decompress. It could also be about contemplating some of these things without all the distractions of your average day or what without really engaging with a lot of people you know about all kinds of uh even if it's useful conversation but all kinds of conversation that has nothing to do about what you're really trying to focus on at the moment all right so it could be something as passful as taking a walk you know i'm going to go take a walk i'm going to take a drug or it could be something as literally um you know, I'm gonna go rent a cabin up in the up in the mountains for the weekend, 
and I'm just going to have bologna sandwiches and Kool-Aid, and I'm going to walk around. I hope the bears don't kill me, you know, you know, just take the air in and, 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 and give my uh, mind a, a way to, uh, you know, to relax and, and, and maybe even uh, sort of find a focus that possibly that was lost during the week. Rough week, week of somebody dying, a week of just nothing can go right. I mean, how many times have we had one of those weeks? You ever have one of those weeks? You know, I have a Monday, sometimes it goes bad, and I'm like, oh, God. I'll survive today, but it would be nice to know that this is not going to be the whole week of this kind of crap. Sometimes that continues, sometimes it doesn't, but I hear you. So that kind of um, what I call internal quest for solitude, I find it's really it's really essential because you'll really definitely find from the artistic and the writing aspects of all of this, remember in the artistic quest, something quite similar, where we need it. And in many ways... And I've laughed about this before on the show and with others, that in many ways people don't hear God anymore. And I don't mean you hear some cleared voice, you know, go go get yourself a Slim Jim and contemplate Moses. I mean, just the feeling of, of knowing that something is pressing upon you that you might want to get done and you feel it's something spiritual like God is moving you in a certain direction. That's much harder in the 21st century when you have a, everything out there. I mean, if you think about it, it just seems like we don't want solitude in the 21st century. Like the modern era almost like is against it because it's filling everything. It's filling the phones with all kinds of different, you know, gadgets inside the phone and the computer and you got TVs flying everywhere and all kinds of cars and the noise and the traffic and the music and people jattering this and jabbering that. It just seems like we're trying to fill every moment of the day with something Versus letting people just be, letting people have some some silence, some, you know. But in in a, a free society that you know a business is a big component of it, I'm sure silence is probably deadly to businesses because it's not getting its message out. Nothing it wants is getting promoted, you know, and, and so forth. Whether it's the government trying to get its message out or you know news or whatever. So, but in many ways, it seems to me that it's trying to silence silence. It's trying to just remove any kind of form of solitude so we more than ever before we have to draw lines on what's necessary for our own you know uh, mental and, uh, and emotional health because if we don't you're not going to expect society is going to do it it's not it's always trying to talk to you and get you to do something even even now i'm telling you about solitude you know and taking up your time but i don't know any way to do it but nevertheless, everything is trying to say something to you. You've got to draw a line someplace where you can say, that's enough of this. I need to go find something about myself, something about a subject I was trying to you know, work on, something creative that I was trying to do, something I need to help me center me because um, you know, this death in my family or my life it, you know, it's kind of taking me for about there. I need to figure out what I want to do with my life because maybe, you know, I'm in a situation where I want to think about a job change or maybe I lost a job. I've talked to a lot of people that lost a job through no fault of their own because of COVID. Things became slow. They had to let them go, that sort of thing. That really makes you reassess things. You can't reassess things, you know, doing jazzercise and, you know, screaming out heavy music. Sometimes you just have to go someplace quiet, whether it's that room in the house that you've done so or whether it's going out someplace else. You know, most parks can be quiet at times. Some may not be. You could find the one that is, or you could find the area that is. But yeah, we need to now learn to do this in our lives and learn to make the decision of when and then get the plan to do so. 
I think it really is a way for us to become better as human beings, better as patient creatures, better as thinkers and writers and creative people, better at this as being more balanced human beings. Because how balanced is it to constantly hear and do and, and, and listen and, and, and all of these noises in our lives uh, on a regular basis? Hmm? You're going to tell me any time we get solitude is when we're sleeping? Hell, that doesn't even always work because sometimes you're having nightmares and you're having all kinds of dreams and you're having all kinds of interruptions. So even that is even a form of, of solitude. We have to go and make our own. I think and many times it's necessary for us as now citizens of the 21st century as we go forward into the, into the future. And you think about it, how important it is that we do this because you'll notice a difference. If you haven't done this a lot already, make a plan to do so because you're going to notice the difference. The difference before you exiled yourself, so to speak, for a little bit and, and when you came back. You feel stronger. You feel more balanced. You feel like you can handle things a lot better. You feel more focused that you know, you've gotten something done. Sometimes people get their best writing done when they take these bouts of solitude. Or sometimes they're just forming up ideas and, and notes that they're, they're, they're writing down. But there is a real difference. It is a way to recharge your batteries, like I mentioned before. It's definitely a way to real, realign your soul to things. It's definitely a good way to clear you know, your, your mind of, of a lot of that, that goobly gook that we get that we just need to get out of there. You know, some people do this because it's a way for them to really, you know, access, uh, access their conscience and, and find out if something that they're doing or something that they're working on right now might not be the most ethical thing, might not be the most beneficial thing, that maybe it's something they need to reevaluate. It's hard to reevaluate things when you're driving in the middle of a storm. Things are flying everywhere. You need to take the break to reevaluate. I mean, don't mean to rhyme there, but... That's really what needs to get done. And you'll see a real difference. You really will. You don't need to be some expert, you know, Tony Robbins, Zen Buddha kind of person to do this. It's just really that simple to do so. You don't have to be an expert on it. But once you start doing it enough, no different than any other kind of practice, you'll figure out what's the ways that are best for you. What works and what, what doesn't. This way you can use the time that you put aside you know, in, in the best manner possible to help you. Because sometimes a lot of us don't always have lots of times. Like I said, you got friends and, and excuse me, if you got family and, and kids and everything, you know, you take any kind of real time away and they, they think you, you, you'll go gone forever. Oh, my God, I think Daddy skipped town. Really? <laughs> I, I, I'm, at, I'm at the box store trying to get some freaking mental solitude over here from you. doesn't mean I'm escaping. It just means I'm taking a break. So it's not an easy thing, and I realize that you got to come up with something more. But um, definitely you want to do that, because when you have family and kids, you, you need more of these breaks than you realize. They take these kids and everything else. It takes a lot from you. It really do. And you got to find ways to put it back so you can be the person you want to be and definitely uh, being the creative person that you want to be. All right, folks, so that is my take on The Promise and the price of solitude and, and writing. I hope you got something for that. I thought it was a show that we needed to talk about more of this subject because it, it really is important. Um, I think I covered this in a really, really superficial way when I did that show on, on time management. But in the end, really, 
this is about going into some of the details as much as possible about solitude and how really it's an important factor in our lives and we have to make it so so that we can uh, become thank you for listening follow the show and support our efforts by visiting our sponsors at www.strengthtobehuman.com or purchasing an ebook at www.somapublishing.com